Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Before we start, I wanted to uh, thank George for the very powerful words that uh, he gave just a few moments ago about the, 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 the vision of, of Messianic Judaism, uh, which is taking uh, the truth of God's word, of his Torah, uh, and, and mirroring it to, through the grace we have in Yeshua, uh, through our, our trust in him, uh, through his shed blood. Uh, and it, indeed, it's only because of, of his grace that we can even begin uh, to follow his word and to walk in his Torah. Uh, and, and that ordering is so crucial because of our trusting in him through his grace, because that's what grace is. Grace is the empowerment of God that empowers us and enables us then to walk in his word. Amen. Well, as you know, we're in a series uh, on the book of Romans, an extended uh, series. Today's part five. We're going to look today at God's plan of redemption uh, by the blood of Yeshua. And we're going to look at the second half of, of Romans chapter three today. Because why? Because there's power in the blood. Amen. So turn with me to Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. And we'll have it on the overhead as well. And Paul says this, But now, uh, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Yeshua the Messiah to all who believe. There's no difference between Jews and Gentiles, for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by the Messiah, Yeshua. God presented Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood uh, to to be uh, received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Yeshua. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is the God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too since there's only one God who justifies the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. Well, this passage, and in fact, in particular, these three verses of Romans uh, 3, 24 to 26, and put those three verses up again. This is the, I'm going to call the heart of the heart of the heart of the gospel. Look at again, Romans 3, 24 to 26. Paul here says, we're justified freely by redemption, which came by Yeshua, the sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice so that he can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him, the one who believes. Now, every other religion in the world calls you to prepare a record of righteousness, a righteous record, and present it to God. But Yeshua faith alone says that God prepares a perfectly righteous record through Yeshua the Messiah and gives it, presents it to you. So you're not saved by your performance. You're saved by faith, which comes by God's grace. 
Uh, but what is that faith? That faith we're told here in these three verses, verses 24 to 26, it's not just faith in general that connects you to God, but it's faith in his blood. Faith in his blood. The blood of Yeshua. Well, what does that mean? What does that represent? It's, it's obviously crucial in this passage here. It's the heart of the heart of the gospel. And to understand what this means, uh, Paul gives us here three key terms uh, that we're going to unpack today, each of these three terms. Two of the three we see here on our English translation, uh, one is not. Uh, but the words are these, we'll put them in the overhead. The words are redemption, propitiation, which was not actually in our text, but it's translated differently, uh, and demonstration. Propiti- uh, redemption, propitiation, uh, and, and demonstration. So in Romans 3.24, the first of our three verses, we're told, although justified freely by his grace through redemption that came by Messiah Yeshua. And then in the next verse, first Romans 3.25, we're told, God presented Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement. That's the word, actually, propitiation. A sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. So this phrase is translated, if you look at the King James Version or older versions, this phrase, sacrifice of atonement, is actually one word in the Greek and, in, and one word in some of the older translations, propitiation. Uh, and then finally, in Romans 3.26, God did this as a demonstration of his justice. So as to be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Yeshua. So in these three verses, these three words tell us what we need to know to grasp the meaning of the blood of Messiah. So in this passage, we're told this. We'll put this on the overhead as well. We're told, number one, what we need, redemption. What he does, propitiation. And what it means for us, demonstration. So, so uh, what, what we need, uh, what he does, what it means for us. So number one, what do we need? We need redemption. We can only be justified through the redemption that's in Yeshua. Now, the sort of redemption or to redeem, it, it literally means to buy back. Uh, to redeem something means to liberate it through a purchase. Uh, and the background of this biblical word lies in the fact that in ancient times, there was no such thing as bankruptcy law. There was no such thing as declaring bankruptcy. Uh, if you owed your creditors more than you could pay them, you lost your freedom. Uh, first, you lost your land, and you became a tenant farmer. Ultimately, you lost your freedom. You become a slave. You, you had to work for your creditors uh, until you paid back what you owed. So you lost your freedom for a number of years. Slavery in the Bible was not racial, uh, and it wasn't forever. It was really more like being an indentured servant uh, for a number of years, with the release at the latest 50 years later, you know, the year of Jubilee. Uh, now, people got into poverty. Things go wrong. Uh, there's droughts. There's famines. People make mistakes. For all sorts of reasons, people get into debt, and they lose their freedom. And in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, in addition to the year of Jubilee, chapter 25 says that God made another provision, a special provision, whereby a goel, a kinsman redeemer, had the right to redeem your land for you and, and buy back your freedom, uh, to buy it back, to redeem it. Because the Lord realized that people will fall into poverty, will fall into slavery, into indebtedness. And so there was this provision made by God for a goel, the Hebrew word for a kinsman redeemer. Uh, There needs to be a redeemer. And a a goel had to have three characteristics uh, to be qualified biblically. We'll put this on the overhead. So number one, he had to be a relative of yours. Uh, If someone fell into debt, into poverty, the kinsman redeemer had to be the same flesh and blood 
a relative. Number two, they had to act not out of compulsion, but out of love, freely, voluntarily. And number three, the Goel had to buy your liberation himself, uh, bearing the cost themselves, uh, bearing the debt, taking all the cost and all the debt upon themselves. And therefore, because of poverty and indebtedness, because this happened, that God made through the Torah made a provision for kinsmen redeemers. But here we have Paul saying we all need redemption. Everybody, the whole human race needs redemption. And Paul, in essence, is saying we are all enslaved. We're all spiritually slaves. And Yeshua is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. We'll get back to that. But our slavery consists of two things uh, that we need to understand if we're going to understand truly what the blood of the Messiah accomplishes for us. One reason we need redemption is because we're enslaved to guilt and shame and the law. We're enslaved because we know we're not measuring up to the law. We feel inadequate. Uh, we feel guilty because we know we're not measuring up to God's standards. Now, in traditional cultures, such as in Africa and the Middle East and Asia, these are shame and honor cultures, uh, shame and guilt cultures. In those cultures, unlike ours, shame and guilt are not considered bad things. Shame and guilt motivate you to do your job. Shame and guilt is what makes these cultures work. And people in those cultures, they have no problem with it. But we here in the West, in our secular modern culture, uh, shame and guilt are bad things. Uh, in our culture, we tell people, you need to write your own script. Uh, decide for yourself, determine for yourself how you want to live your life. You should not try to live up to anybody else's standards, not even your family's standards. You ought to decide what is right or what is wrong for you. In our Western, secular, individualistic culture, shame and guilt are considered a neurosis. Uh, we tell people who are racked with shame and guilt, uh, you haven't taken control of your life yet. You know, we in America, we typically don't have a problem with shame and guilt because we decide what's right or wrong for us. But this great 20th century writer, Franz Kafka, he wasn't so fooled. And he wrote this. We have it on the overhead. He wrote, the state we find ourselves in today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. Sinful, yet without guilt. What does he mean? Because we live in a relativistic culture. We say truth, morality, right and wrong. It's all relative to me. We live in a culture that no longer has a concept of guilt. We claim that we determine what's right or wrong for ourselves, and yet we can't shake the fact that deep down we still feel a sense of shame and condemnation, that we're not adequate, uh, that we're nowhere even close to living up to even our own standards, let alone God's standards. So Kafka is saying here, we feel like we're sinners, even though we no longer even have these categories in our society. We, we say we think there's no such thing as guilt and shame, and yet we're driven by it anyways. And ironically, this actually makes it harder to deal with than in traditional cultures. So even though we say we're free of guilt, we're, we're free of shame, uh, look, at, look at how we act. You know, we're workaholics, we're obsessed with our looks, uh, always trying to promote ourselves, we constantly need to prove ourselves, we're riddled with anxiety, we just don't call it guilt. But that's what it is. In traditional cultures, we see the guilt and the shame, but in ours, we hide it. Uh, we just won't admit it. 
but we have the same guilt and the, sh- and sa- and the same shame, but we just repress it. We, we push it down. But deep down, we all know, if we're honest, there's something wrong with us. We're enslaved to our guilt and our shame. But it's like kind of an oil leak that's below the waterline. You can't see where it's coming from versus the oil leak that, that's above the waterline. So here's another reason why, why I will never be free of all this guilt and shame. Uh, Andrew Del Banco is an author I want to recommend. He was an NYU professor. He comments in one of his books on this Walker Percy novel called Love in the Ruins. Uh, and in this book, with the, the overhead, in the book, uh, he talks about Max, the psychologist. Uh, Max believes that pleasure without guilt is the essence of a happy, enlightened life. And we'll, we'll take it down first. We'll, we'll put that in the, up in a minute. Uh, and, and so Max believes that, hey, we're modern people. Uh, we realize that you have to decide what's right or wrong for you. And therefore, you should never feel guilty. You should not let other people's standards oppress you. But now Max, a psychologist, he has a patient who comes in named Tom, who just had an affair, just cheated on his wife. Uh, and, and Max is having trouble understanding Tom. Because Tom says, look, I don't feel guilty at all about this affair. But I'm still troubled. So Max, the psychologist, asked him, so then what is it that worries you if you don't feel guilty? And Tom says, that's what worries me, <laughs> that I don't feel guilty. <laughs> so Max is confused. He says, but then I don't see what it is that that's the problem. If there's no guilt after your affair, what is it that's your problem? Tom says, it means you don't have life in you. And Del Banco, in his book, writes this commentary. And they'll put this on the overhead. This is his, his, his analysis. He says, what Max, a psychologist, doesn't understand is that the guilt that that Tom no longer feels had been his last reassurance that there existed something in the world that transcended him. If there's no guilt or shame, because you decide what's right or wrong for you, because everything is relative, then yes, there's no guilt, but then there's no meaning. Because if there's no truth out there, uh, uh, above above you, uh, not created by you, but, but sitting in judgment over you, that then you can, that you can have guilt about if you don't live up to it, if there's no truth, if, if there's no objective right or wrong, then it really doesn't matter how you live at all, does it? Which means everything is meaningless. There's no guilt, but then there's no meaning. Because the world's going to burn up one day. Nobody's going to be around to remember anything you've done. So if you live a life uh, of love uh, or a life of cruelty, it makes no difference at all. No guilt results in no meaning. But deep down, we know that there's meaning. We are built to desire it and to pursue meaning. It's part of our our DNA. It's it's, It's part of our soul designed by our maker. And deep down, despite all our claims to the contrary, we instinctively know certain things are right, certain things are wrong. We all have this built in conscience. We know there's a way that we should live. And deep down, we know that we're guilty for not living up to it. We're enslaved to this guilt and shame and inadequacy and all the things that drive us. But that's not all. The other thing we need to to be redeemed from is not just from uh, the penalty of the law, not just from the guilt and the shame and the need to to live up to, to God's standard, but we also need to be redeemed and liberated from what the Bible calls false masters. If you feel a need to prove yourself, 
and we all do, because we have this sense of our sinfulness and, and falling short, uh, we turn to false masters for answers. We turn to our job. We turn to academics or athletics or achievement. We turn to financial success or romantic relationships. You know, if this person loves me, then I know I have meaning and purpose in life. We turn to family. But if we're looking at these things for our own significance and security, then it's no longer just a job or or a good school or a good sports team or a, a good relationship or a good family. Then they become a master. And here's what a slave master is. A slave master is someone who has no boundaries and who beats you if you fail. We often say, oh, my boss, he's a real slave master. No, you don't know what a real slave master is. A real slave master has no boundaries. They can do anything they want to you, and they do. And when you fail them, they beat you. Now, how do you know? How do you know whether your family or your career or your school or your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, how do you know it's a slave master or it's just a family, a career, a school, a relationship? They're a slave master if you can't say no to them. You work too hard? You can't, you can't stop? If you're enslaved in a relationship, it means you can't say no? You can't walk away? You've got to have them? Why? Because they're your significance. They're your security. They're your very life. It's the basis of your whole self-identity. Same thing with making money or your career. It's no longer just a job or just money or just a college or just a relationship. They're slave masters. And if you don't live up, they beat you. It becomes a self-hatred, a self-loathing. They beat you. You need to be redeemed. You need to be redeemed from the penalty of the law. You're enslaved to guilt and shame. You need to be redeemed from the false masters you set up in your your own life uh, to shield you from this sense that you're not what you ought to be, uh, to cover your sense of shame and guilt. So we all need redemption. Now, what does God do about this? That brings us to our second key word, propitiation. What God does about it is propitiation. Now, by the way, point number one, that we all need redemption, that God wants to save you and redeem you from your false masters, from being enslaved with the things we do, from our guilt and our shame. Most people usually like point number one. But most modern people hate point number two. Because the second thing we're told here, the thing that God does to affect our redemption, is Romans 3.25 says this in the overhead. It says, God presented Messiah, put this in the overhead, please. God presented Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement. Romans 3.25. Now, this phrase, sacrifice of atonement, is just one word in the Greek. It's the word hilasterion, and it means propitiation. In fact, again, that's how it's translated in, in the Old King James. It means to turn away wrath. Propitiation means to turn away wrath, to appease or satisfy anger. Propitiation means this. It means the Lord pays the debt to justice himself. And there are three concepts within this key term. We'll put this on the overhead. Propitiation means, number one, to pay a debt. Number two, to justice. Number three, himself. God pays it himself. Now, here's the place where secular, modern people kind of freak out about what the Bible says about the cross. Let's walk through it. First of all, 
it's about justice, right? It's God pays his debt to justice. God's wrath is his settled judicial anger against injustice and evil. And that's why in this passage it emphasizes that Yeshua had to die to demonstrate God's justice. Look at Romans 3.26. God did it, the sacrifice of atonement through Yeshua, God did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. And so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Yeshua. Paul, Paul is saying here the cross was necessary to do justice, to deal with justice, because God can't just forgive. He can't just let evil go by. Uh, he would not be a just judge if he did. Justice has to be done. God's wrath is his settled opposition to that which is wrong and evil and sin. It's not some kind of emotional crankiness. But we moderns, we don't like the idea of an angry God. So people say all the time, let's not stress the anger and the justice of God. Let's stress the love uh, and, and, and the goodness of God. But that shows you don't understand how a heart works. You can't pit, on the one hand, anger and justice against, on the other hand, love and goodness. Because it's your love and goodness that makes you evil, that makes you angry against evil and injustice. Now, Becky Pipper, this, this believer, she struggled with this idea of God being angry. And she started to write an essay about it. And as she was writing this essay, she remembered a time in her life when she was watching two very talented people whom she loved very much sinking into drug abuse. And she wrote this. We'll put this on the overhead. She wrote, I felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them. Can't you see? I said to them, don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You're becoming less and less yourself all, every time I see you. Don't you see what, also what you're doing to the people around you? And then she goes on. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound together in experience. And if I, a flawed, narcissistic woman, she writes, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition out of love, how much more? a morally perfect God who has made them. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Do you hear that? Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So God gets angry. Why? Because he loves you. In fact, the more he loves you, the more angry he is when you sin and mess up your life. And he expresses his anger. Why? Because he's not indifferent. He cares about you. The reason why God is so angry at the sin and the evil that's destroying the human race that he loves and that he made, uh, that's destroying the world that he loves and made, the reason why he's so angry is because he's so filled with love and goodness. If he wasn't filled with love and goodness, he wouldn't care. So the more loving you are, the easier it is to get angry at sin and wrongdoing and the things that are destroying the ones whom you love. So to pit love and justice uh, against each other, that's silly. So that's the first thing you, got, you have to understand about propitiation, about Yeshua's sacrifice of atonement on your behalf. It's justice being done. It means God's justice must be satisfied. The second aspect of propitiation is that the blood of Messiah pays this debt towards justice. 
when someone wrongs you, when someone wrongs you deeply, there's only two things to do. Both of them entail suffering. If someone really wrongs you, really harms you, uh, they've robbed you of something. Uh, They've robbed you of happiness. They've robbed you of your reputation. They've robbed you of money, something. If they've really wronged you, one thing you can do is you can find a way to hurt them back, right? And it's a lot of fun, at least to start with. So you find ways to hurt them. You find ways to rob them of their happiness or their reputation. You go after them. If they've hurt you, you try to hurt them back, at least as much, probably a little bit more, because they started it after all. And then you feel maybe the debt's gone. They don't owe you as much anymore. Why? Because you made them suffer. But there's a problem with that. Because if someone wrongs you and you pay them back and you make them suffer, evil wins. You become a harder person. You no longer trust people like you once did. You become crueler. Uh, You become more able to do other things again and again to hurt people. And each time you respond with cruelty, it's that much easier to do it again the next time. And not only does evil win because it makes you hard, makes you a hard character, but also the original perpetrator, the person you're paying back, if you respond with evil, they will never see the truth. If you respond with cruelty, they'll never see the truth. They'll never see what they've done. And then they'll retaliate back against you. I'm going to pay you back. And then you pay them back again. And then other people get involved. And on and on and on it goes, this whole cycle. And evil wins. So if we make them suffer and pay the debt, evil wins. So what's the alternative? We forgive. Forgiveness breaks the cycle of anger and retaliation and vengeance. But do you know what forgiveness entails? It means you suffer. You bear the loss of your reputation. You bear the loss of your happiness. You bear the loss of the money. You suffer. But that's the only way. That's the only way for the perpetrator to perhaps see the light one day. It's the only way for you to stay a soft-hearted person, not a hard-hearted person. It's the only way that evil does not win. Do you realize what happened? What happens? Why Yeshua had to suffer in order to forgive us? When a wrong is done, there's only two things that can happen. Either they suffer or you suffer. But someone has to suffer. There's the only two choices, the only two options. Someone must suffer. Forgiveness is the willingness to voluntarily Take the suffering upon yourself. The debt cannot be just willed away. It can only be paid through suffering. Now, if you see at your own individual human level, when someone does wrong, that the debt can't just be willed away, it has to be paid through suffering, that there's a debt owed to justice. Uh, Justice must be satisfied. It can only be satisfied and paid through suffering. If you understand that on an individual level, with respect to, to, to we flawed, sinful, narcissistic people, then how much less can absolutely just, because he's absolutely loving God, how much less can he just let sins go without destroying the human race? That's destroying the world. He can't. 
but he loves us, so he wants to forgive us. So therefore, what is he doing on the cross? He's doing on the cross cosmically what you have to do if you want to forgive a debt, a sin, individually. He's paying. He's paying the debt. He's paying the debt to his own justice. He's satisfying his own justice. And that leads to the last part of propitiation. Some people say, a lot of modern secular people say, I hate this idea of a wrathful God. But as we've seen, then you don't have a loving God. Well, I hate this idea that sin has to be paid for like a debt. Well, you can't just forgive, can you? Uh, uh, You can't forgive either. You can't just forgive a debt. Because forgiveness entails suffering. Okay, okay, but the one thing I really hate is this whole idea of, of, of a blood sacrifice. That God needs blood to be appeased. How primitive. How barbaric. In fact, you know, remember, I remember reading this book once years ago in high school called The Iliad by some guy named Homer. Never remember his last name. <laughs> uh, and, and in this book, the Greeks are sailing over to Troy to get Helen back. The Trojans had stolen her. But the Greek general, Agamemnon, he got on the wrong side of the goddess Artemis. So she would not give him fair winds to get to Troy. So they're going to lose the war. So what does Agamemnon do to appease the wrath of Artemis? He sacrifices his daughter, Iphigenia. And then Artemis looks down from Mount Olympus. She says, okay, you've appeased my wrath. I'll give you fair winds to get to Troy. And you say, that's primitive. That's barbaric. Uh, uh, Thank God that kind of religion has died out in most parts of, of, of the civilized world. But now, this critic says, now here you've got Paul bringing it all back. How awful that God needs to be appeased by the death of his son. But that's not it at all. You're forgetting something. Look again, Romans 3.25. It says this, God, prese- God presented Messiah as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. God presented this. And this is where we come face to face with the wonderful but mysterious doctrine of the triunity of God. That there's one God, but he exists eternally and he manifests himself in three persons. Because that means that on the cross, it was God himself, in the person of Yeshua, demanding not our blood, but shedding his own blood. It's the opposite of paganism. The exact opposite. Yeshua was the propitiation for our sins. And as a result, you and I are redeemed. Indeed, Yeshua propitiating the wrath of God through the shedding of his blood doesn't make any sense unless you understand the deity of Messiah. So it's not the Father is angry and Yeshua comes and appeases his anger. But what the text is actually saying is that God himself, in Yeshua the Messiah, goes to the cross and pays the price absorbs the suffering of divine justice himself. Who goes to the cross? God goes to the cross in the person of Yeshua, which means that God is substituting himself for us. Indeed, what is sin? Sin is you substituting yourself for God, putting yourself where only God deserves to be, substituting yourself for God putting yourself where only God deserves to be in charge of your life. Sin is you substituting yourself for God, 
But salvation is God substituting himself for you. Putting himself where only you deserve to be. On the cross. Taking the penalty. Do you see how this is the exact opposite of paganism? In paganism, like the story of Agamemnon, you know, sacrificing his daughter, Iphigenia, uh, these poor human beings have to shed their blood to appease the gods. But in the gospel, God himself comes and sheds his own blood. You don't believe me? Look at the book of Acts 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, 28. Paul, it says here, Shepherd the congregation of God, who, which he purchased with his own blood. Do you hear that? It says, the text says, we are purchased through the blood of God. How can this be? How can God purchase us with his blood? Since, since when does God have blood? When he's God in the person of Yeshua, the Messiah. God sheds his own blood, the text is saying, on the cross, in the person of Yeshua. He sheds his own blood to pay the debt of justice and to free you and redeem you. But that's not all. The third and final key word in our text is the word demonstration. Uh, This incredible atonement we have here. uh, The death of Messiah, the redemption of Messiah on the cross, the propitiation of Messiah on the cross. Uh, This was a legal uh, transaction, but it was also a public demonstration. The word demonstration is used again and again in our passage. It means a public presentation. The cross wasn't designed simply to change your status, but also to change your heart. Now, that's to change your status to a legal transaction, but to change your heart by showing you who God really is. And who is he? The text says he's both just and the justifier of those who believe. Do you want to have your heart changed? Listen, in the Torah, the principle of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, it's spelled out in detail in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 25. And it's someone who, again, on the overhead, number one, who comes in this, of the same flesh and blood as you, who voluntarily and lovingly, number two, number three, bears the debt himself. And, of course, the greatest Goel, the greatest uh, kinsman redeemer in the Tanakh is in the book of Ruth. Ruth, as you probably know, was not a Jew. She was a Moabitess. Uh, a, a Jewish family had fled from famine in Israel, settled in the land of Moab, a father a mother, Naomi, uh, two sons. Ruth marries one of the sons. Uh, Then tragically, a plague comes in, and the father and both sons die, leaving three widows, Naomi, the mother, her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and and Orpah. Naomi decides to go back to Israel, to her hometown of of Bethlehem. And she tells her two daughters-in-law, you all stay behind in Moab, where you're from. But Ruth insists, I'm going to Israel with Naomi. And gives this very famous speech of Ruth, beginning in Ruth 1.16. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If anything but death separates me from you. So Ruth, she goes back with Naomi. But back in Israel, things aren't much better uh, economically. 
Naomi, has, she's lost her family ancestral land uh, because of debt. And as a widow in a patriarchal, agrarian society, she is destitute. So in order to provide food for herself and for Naomi, Ruth begins to glean in the fields, picking up the extra grain as permitted by the Torah. But remember, Ruth is a foreigner, uh, a Moabitess, uh, as well as a single young woman. So she was in tremendous danger when she goes out in the field to glean. She could have easily been attacked, raped. But she had to provide for herself and for Naomi, so she goes into the fields. And lo and behold, the very first field she comes to is a field owned by Boaz. And he was kind to her, and he said to her, he said, I told my man not to touch you, which shows how dangerous it was, especially to a racially other woman. So look at Ruth 2, verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, don't go and glean in any other field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. I've told my men not to lay a hand on you. So Ruth gleans all day. She comes back to Naomi, tells her everything that happened. And Naomi says to her, Boaz? Boaz is one of our kinsmen. And then Naomi and Ruth decide on a very bold plan. At harvest time one night, Ruth goes out into the field uh, where Boaz is sleeping and lays down at his feet. And he wakes up. He's startled. Look at Ruth 3, verse 9. Uh, who are you? He asks. I am your servant, Ruth, she says. Spread the corner of the wings, literally in the Hebrew, the corner of your garment over me. Be my go-well. Be my kinsman redeemer. In essence, he's saying, marry me. Love me. Redeem me and my family. And Boaz looks kindly at her and says, because you through Naomi are my own flesh and blood, and because I do this voluntarily, I will be your kinsman redeemer. I will buy back the land. I will pay the debt. I'll bear the cost myself. I'll buy back the land and redeem the family. But, but more than that, I will, I will marry you and I will love you. Notice that he doesn't just cover the debt. He doesn't just give her pardon. Uh, he also gives her justification, if you will, uh, all, because all that he is and all that he has becomes hers. And so instead of just covering the debt, he also floods her life with love and honor. Now, the best news is that this is not just a story about somebody else. This same story in Yeshua has happened to you and to me. Because Yeshua is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. First of all, what did it take for him to become a kinsman? For him to be our own flesh and blood? He had to come from heaven to earth. He had to empty himself of all his glory. He had to be found in the likeness of a human being. And secondly, what did it take for him to become not just a kinsman, but a, but a redeemer? He didn't just, it did not just cost him money like it cost Boaz. It cost him his life. Because our debt was not finite. It was infinite. But look at what he's done. Propitiation. He bore the cost himself. Do you see now what it means to be a Yeshua follower? Being a Yeshua follower isn't to say, I promise really hard to obey, to try to obey you, God, and to be like Yeshua, uh, and I'll come to Shul every week and I'll read my Bible. No. What it means to be a Yeshua follower is to say to him, spread your garment over me. Be my kinsman redeemer. And Yeshua says, yes, I will. 
It'll cost me, it cost me everything, but I will. And he won't just pardon you. He won't just cover your debt. Because he will unite with you. He will take you into his life. And he'll come into your life. And all that he is, and all that he has, becomes yours. This is what is demonstrated in the gospel. It's what's demonstrated is that, as Romans 3.26 says, he's now uh, both the just and the justifier of those who believe. Now look, that's what demonstration means. It means, it means look and be changed by this. Now, there's a God of traditional religion who's a demanding God. You better be good. You better try hard. And if you try hard enough, maybe I'll take you to heaven. But this, but, but this God of, 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 the, of the Scripture, the real God, the God of the cross, he's actually more just and more holy than that. Because Yeshua's action of going to the cross is the most perfect obedience in the universe. When Yeshua went to the cross, he didn't deserve it. He didn't need it. But he did it for you and for me voluntarily as a goel, as a kinsman redeemer. He perfectly loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He perfectly loved his neighbor. That's you and me. That's us. He fulfilled the law perfectly. The God of the cross doesn't just want you to try hard. The God of the cross wants perfect obedience to the law. And in Yeshua, he has it. He gets it in your place. So on the one hand, the God of the cross is more holy and more just than the demanding God of traditional religion. But on the other hand, he's actually more loving than the secularized uh, liberal view of God. It says, oh, I just want a God that loves and accepts everybody. Well, let me ask you a question. What did it cost your God to love you? And they say, I don't know. cost him nothing. He just loves and accepts everybody. And therefore, that God's love is cheap. But the biblical God, the real God, because he's a holy God, is also an infinitely loving God. Because he's so holy, he can't just forgive. He had to suffer. And because of his great love for you, his, he's proven his love for you because he did. And so what you have on the cross is a perfectly loving and a perfectly holy God at the same time, which he demonstrated through his shedding of his blood for you. Do you believe in the blood of Messiah, the blood of God? Do you believe in the need for the wrath of God to be satisfied through the blood of Yeshua? If so, then you have a God who's far more holy than even the most moralistic and legalistic religion, at the same time far more loving uh, than the most secularized liberal religion. At once. Why? Because as our text says, he's both just and and the justifier of the one who trusts in him. That's what demonstrates his holiness and his love. That and that alone is what will change your heart. You see, fear never changes a heart. You better be good or you're going to go to hell. That never changes the heart. I remember a, a fellow MJA rabbi uh, told me a, a true story. He was on call at a local hospital at a cha- as a chaplain. He gets a call in the middle of the night. patient wants to see him. He rushes, runs out to the hospital. When he gets there, the patient says, I'm so sorry, Rabbi. I am so sorry to have bothered you. I thought I was going to die. You know, They said I had one month to live. Then they just realized that they were looking at the wrong x-ray. 
and I'm not a very religious guy, I'm really not very interested, but for a moment there I thought I really needed you. <laughs> True story. And that just goes to show you, fear cannot awaken love. Only love can awaken love. And this liberal, secular idea of a God who just loves everybody and accepts everybody, is that going to change your life? Is that going to electrify you? Is that going to amaze you with his love? No, of course not. Both an absolutely abusive parent and an absolutely permissive parent, they both ruin the kids. Because if you're, totally, uh, if you're either totally permissive, no boundaries, or totally abusive, always demanding, always micromanaging, always criticizing, it ruins the children. But the God of the cross is neither. If you look at him, it will change your life. Let me close with this amazing two-life example of the power of the blood of Messiah to change your life from the inside out. And this is from the autobiography of Billy Graham. He describes that in 1955, he was invited to speak at Cambridge University in England, at Great St. Mary's Hall. And when it was announced, there was all these flood of articles and editorials and letters to the editor in all the London newspapers at the time. And they were up in arms, bitterly complaining about inviting this guy for him to speak. They were upset that this, they said this fundamentalistic, Baptist, American backwoods preacher was, was daring to come to England to speak to our best and our brightest about this primitive kind of religion, featuring these distasteful, distasteful doctrines of, like blood and atonement and hell. And the letters to the editor said, we believe that religion is good in its place, but we've gotten past this American brand of fundamentalistic, conservative, primitive religion that takes the Bible literally and preaches blood atonement. And all these letters, they freaked out poor Billy. And the letter said, you're just a southern country bumpkin. You have the impertinence to speak to our students at Cambridge? So, so the first three nights he's there, he tries really hard to speak their language. He quotes all these intellectuals and these theologians and these scholars, and he falls flat on his face. So before his last lecture, he gets down on his knees. He says, Lord, this is my last talk tonight. I promise, I, will, I promise you, Lord, I will only preach the cross. So here's a first-hand account of what happened that night. One attendee wrote this. I'll never forget what happened that night. I was in the totally packed chancel, sitting on the floor, with the Regis Professor of Divinity on one side of me, and the chaplain of the college, a future bishop, on the other side. Both of these were good men, but completely against the idea that you needed salvation from sin by the blood of Messiah. And dear Billy Graham, he got up that night, began in Genesis, went right through the Bible, talking about every single sacrifice. The blood was flowing all over the great hall, everywhere, for three quarters of an hour. Both my neighbors were terribly embarrassed, horribly embarrassed, by this crude proclamation of the blood of Messiah. And they were very smug, knowing that no bright, sophisticated young Brit would listen to this dribble. It was everything they hated about the gospel and about the scriptures. But at the end of the sermon, to everyone's shock, out of the more than by the 1,000 to 1,500 people that were there, 
400 young men and women stayed to commit their lives to Yeshua. 30 to 40 percent of the audience. I remember meeting a young, pa- young pastor many years later, a uh, Cambridge grad. I asked him, where did Yeshua faith begin for you? Cambridge, 1955. Billy Graham, really, when? Last night, Wednesday night. How did it happen? All I remember is I walked out of Great St. Mary's, and for the first time, I understood Yeshua really died for me. He died for me. What was unbelievable to all these theologians and dons was that a a, a man like that, preaching a sermon like that, could have totally changed a life of a young person like that. But so it did. Because there's power in the blood. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. All guys, the music came to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Now that we thank you for your redemption through Yeshua. Uh, We thank you that you publicly demonstrated through the redemption and the propitiation, through the atoning sacrifice of Yeshua, through the cross of the Messiah, that you can be both just and the justifier of those who believe and repent and trust in you, trust in Yeshua. Lord, we know that this and only this is what changes a heart, is what changes a life. The cross demonstrates, Lord, that you are infinitely holy and infinitely loving at once, at the same time. Thank you, Yeshua, for being our Goel, for being our kinsman redeemer, for coming to earth by taking on our flesh and blood, becoming our kinsman, and then voluntarily, willingly, lovingly, paying the debt yourself by shedding your blood. Make us, Lord, into this kind of loyal, steadfast, sold-out, passionate disciple that that should flow from from grasping these tremendous truths you've shown us today. Lives... May our lives to be lives filled uh, with passion, uh, to be like you, to be as honest and, and courageous and faithful and true, to be as sacrificing and as loving as you, Yeshua. And at the same time, Lord, when we fail, because we know we will, Lord, we know that we are covered by your blood. So, so this passion to be like you, and at the same time, this gentleness with each other when we fail, this unique kind of community. That's what we want, Lord, for EC, for here at Chaim, Lord. Lord, make us the kind of supernaturally committed, powerful, spirit-led, humble, loving community. Make us like that, Lord. So, so put the cross, place it, Lord, right in the middle of our hearts that we will daily die for you because there's power in your blood. And we pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.